Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 42. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. So, uh, we are doing this on a Monday, not a Sunday, um, like we normally do. And that's because I was traveling. I'm in San Francisco right now. Uh, that, yeah, it's fun. cool. Yeah, it was very fun. Uh, I was here with my parents. My brother lives in San Francisco, so we're here to visit. I had a very fun experience today. Um, my brother and I, we bought some bubble tea. And then my parents were waiting for us. They were just doing some shopping. And my parents are, you know, very Indian. We, we, we gave them bubble tea to see if they would like it. And the faces that they made when they tried it were just amazing. <laughs> you can make a YouTube channel out of this. Like, just... <laughs> so they were very good or very bad on the bubble tea, huh? They, they don't like bubble tea. <laughs> oh, well, you know, you try. Um, that's, that's good. You try and expand their horizons a little bit. And <laughs> this is what you get. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. Uh, and I'm, I'm enjoying my time here so far. Uh, a team that is not enjoying their time recently. How's that for a transition? The Toronto Maple oh, yeah. Leafs, who, um, a plus segue. who since William Nylander have come back are one and four essentially, right? Or like one, three and one. You gotta think that, um, the Leafs should trade him for yeah, nothing. For absolutely yeah, nothing. he's terrible. He's uh, a locker room cancer. The stats don't lie. Yeah, they don't. Um, no, maybe they do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so we're, so we're gonna we're gonna talk a bit about how the Leafs have done. Like this is kind of the Leafs as fully formed. Um, mm-hmm. We missed Zach Hyman for a couple games due to suspension, but that aside, this is kind of the roster we're going to have, barring some uh, trade or some unforeseen circumstance, really. So, how do you feel they've done over the last five games beyond the record? A lot better than the record looks like mm-hmm. is the way I would put it. Um, they actually had one of their strongest games in a lot of respects against Tampa. Yeah. And that was the game that they lost 4-1. And so there were some ugly moments that led to them losing 4-1. But they just ran into Andre Vasilevsky playing out of his mind. And Vasilevsky can do that to you. Most goalies in the NHL who are starters can do that to you at some point. Sometimes even the backups can do that to you as... Leaf fans of a certain vintage will remember because Arthur's Urbe, who was like a career journeyman backup, went bananas on us one year and knocked us out of the conference finals. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't get too upset. Like, it can certainly happen in the playoff series. Just ask the 2010 Capitals. But, you know, sometimes there's not a lot you can do in the face of really, really good hot goaltending. And you just have to hope that he can't sustain it. And he probably can't. Yeah, uh, for yeah. too long. In, so. in that particular game, Vasilevsky was just mind-boggling. Uh, quick correction to myself: We're, the Leafs are one, two, and two since the Florida loss was also in overtime, uh, not yes. one, three, and one, as I said. But yeah, like I've generally felt that the Leafs have been all right over the last five games, and uh, there was a Myrtle had a piece in the Athletic about this, and it, it details some of these stats, but. Over the last five games, um, and actually in every game except the Detroit game, the Leafs won the 5-on-5 expected goals battle and the 5-on-5 shots battle or Corsi battle. And part of that is because they were trailing for for those games, and that leads to them pushing, right, perhaps in a way that score effects don't totally adjust for in small samples, right? Score effects are kind of an average thing. It doesn't mean in every single case it perfectly captures the uh, benefit you get on the shot clock of being behind right mm-hmm. um but even beyond that like I, I think there's there's a few positive signs right the, the least have actually i believe outscored other teams at five on five as well over this this period it's really been the special teams that have let us down which is sort of unusual right for 
a long time on this podcast, we've talked about the Leafs as kind of a a, a team that does all right five on five in terms of shot share and expected goal share. Uh, that excels there really because of goaltending and, and shooting talent, and then really kicks ass on special teams, especially on their power play, right? Because their power play mm-hmm. is perhaps the most deadly in the league, and their penalty kill is not amazing, but Freddie Anderson's a good goalie. Yeah, uh, notwithstanding that he's been a little more mortal lately yeah, than a, he looked. It's hard to criticize him for that, though, given yeah. that he, he stole us quite a few games in October and November, and even in the early parts of December. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this like is kind he of was natural... due to have a bit of a slump. Yeah, and it was it always going to happen at some point. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, the biggest thing is is that one, two, and two, and five games can happen to even quite good teams. Mm-hmm. And it sucks, and I hope we start getting more points out of it. But looking at process, I've always wondered with the Leafs whether score effects were playing maybe a disproportionate role. Like, this is just a pet suspicion, and so I want to be clear that I have... Not a lot <laughs> to back it up with, but I, I always felt like the Leafs looked worse as a shot team than maybe they should just because they were leading so often and that that wasn't totally captured by the score adjustment that's supposed to account for that. And now that the Leafs are trailing more, or they have been lately, they suddenly look better by shot share, even adjusted. And so I'm wondering if there's something going on there. It could just be, you know, noise and things happen. Mm -hmm. And the Leafs also got back William Nylander, and he's been viewed as, wow, I can't even say his name anymore. William Nylander, uh, player for the Toronto Maple Leafs, whose name I should be able to pronounce at this point. He's been back, and he's been viewed as like a mild disappointment in some quarters. I don't know if people were expecting him to, like, come out on the ice and like shoot bolts of lightning and fire at people or something like that but you know it's been a an adjustment process he's looked very tired visibly a couple of times i think he's been pretty good yeah i mean at I, times. I i i do too i think so i guess there's a couple things we should get out of the way i think his power play unit is is not amazing um even when that power play unit was going well Right? in the sense that they were creating chances, it always feels really unplanned. Right? Like, I, I've, mm. I've tweeted this before, but that power play unit feels like a substitute teacher, Jake Gardner, poorly supervising four unruly students who are just kind of doing whatever. Yeah. Right? And like, they didn't really have a plan, and it, you know, somehow it, they, they get decent shots away, and they don't have a ton of finishing talent, especially relative to other power plays. Um, mm-hmm. I don't expect that to be a successful group. Nylander gives them a more cohesive plan at least a, a more cohesive way to get into the zone. And early on, he's been good at that, notwithstanding um, one mess up in Tampa that unfortunately ended up in the back of our net. Mm, but yeah. I, I, I still don't expect much out of that power play unit. I, I, I really don't. The, the talent is just not there. Um, you know, it, it's William Nylander, Jake Gardner, Tyler Ennis, Andreas Janssen, and Patrick Marleau. So I, I think Nylander and... Gardner could both play roles on PP1s. If you're playing any of the other guys on a PP1, it suggests your team is really bad. Yeah. Right? And, so, like, it, you know, this is probably... It's, it's a second unit. It's yeah. definitely a second unit. Exactly. Um, and with how good the Leafs' first unit is, I'm not too concerned about that. So, I, in that sense, I'm, I'm not really bothered by his lack of production on the power play. At even strength, he has two points in five games. Funnily enough, one of those points came with him off the ice. He gave the puck to Matthews, then immediately changed. Matthews moved the puck to Riley, and then Riley banked it in off Dougie Hamilton. That was in Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Nylander got the second assist there, uh, being on the bench. 
his lines have been very good at, at five on five. He's currently rocking a 58% Corsi, a 57% Fenwick. Um, scoring chance percentage is 56. High dangerous uh, Corsi 4 is 62. Like, on ice, it's been very good. So him, Marlowe, and Kadri, which has been the primary group, uh, for every game except the Detroit game, I think that's who he was with. They're kind of kicking ass. They're, they're playing, I think, mostly depth players. And it mm-hmm. shows that you have two guys who will just destroy depth players in Kadri and, and Nylander. So in that sense, it's, it's been a success. And interestingly, um, the, the line that people expected Nylander to, to be with, or at least the center that people expected Nylander to be, to be with, Austin Matthews, who's been playing with Janssen and Kapanen, that line has also been really good over the past few games. It's operating at like a 55 or 60% Corsi as well. And these are tiny samples. You can't really get carried away with them. I wouldn't say these are anything besides um, encouraging signs. Mm-hmm. But it is encouraging to see that both Nylander and Matthews are independently succeeding without one another. Yeah, and that was a big question that we had coming into the year, right? Like, we mostly saw them succeeding together. Mm -hmm. And then we saw kind of iffy results with uh, Nylander playing with Kadri and Marlowe. Sorry, not with Kadri and Marlowe, with Kadri and Komarov. Right. Excuse me, which did not seem to work. Whereas now Marlowe, Kadri, Nylander seems like a real line. And so... And, and they, I hate to say it, but... <laughs> they do definitely benefit from, I think, the, the matchups that they're facing. Absolutely. But as well, they should, right? Like, that's the whole point of center yeah. depth, is that you yeah, have a line exactly. to do that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and these games have been on the road uh, mm-hmm. almost entirely, except the Detroit game. Yeah, they've all been on the road. So in that particular situation, teams are matching up more against Matthews or Tavares uh, as opposed to Kadri. I wonder if we see those shot differences come down to something more normal. Um, mm-hmm. when they get to home ice and Babcock potentially uses them more as a matchup line. I'm not sure if he plans on doing that or even if he plans on keeping these lines together long-term. I, I actually want him to do to keep these lines together for a little bit longer. I want to get a better look at both Matthews and Nylander with good line mates who are not each other. Yeah, uh, and we might actually start to get a better possibility of kind of separating out where the real value is there. Yeah. Um, and I do think that uh, Janssen as a left wing for Matthews has been like an unqualified success. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not that it feels that way, maybe, but yeah. And Kapanen's been great. Yeah, Kapanen's um, phenomenal, right? He, uh, we've, we've talked a lot about Kapanen and how impressed we've been with him this year. And he's done nothing in the, <laughs> in the one week or since we last discussed him to <laughs> prove us wrong. He's still amazing. It'd be really sad if we just bailed out completely on Kapanen <laughs> in one week. We were just sort of like, yeah, we were wrong. He's like fourth line tops. Yeah. Um, yeah, so <laughs> this is about as optimistic as you can possibly expect us to be for a team that just lost like four of its games. Yeah, five. I mean, I, I actually am kind of optimistic. I was always kind of skeptical of like, okay, how much is Nylander coming back going to help this group, right? Mm. And it's good that when Nylander has come back, with a close-to-fully-formed lineup, the Leafs have been doing better at even strength. That's been one of the the major, I guess, battlegrounds of the Twitter hockey Twitter wars regarding the Leafs and Mike mm-hmm. Babcock and, you know, all of that has been like, oh, why doesn't this team do better at 5-on-5? Five five? And over the past couple games, they have been, and it's been goaltending and special teams and sometimes just stupid errors, right? Like, yeah. I'm not going to pretend that, especially in a single-game sample, that, like, expected goals or course he tells even half the story, right? Because we see how, how badly that can... how badly um, 
expected goals, for example, can misrepresent a chance or two chances or whatever. In a small sample, that is that can be quite problematic, but it's still a good sign, right? And I'm I'm encouraged from what I've seen from Nylander. I'm encouraged from what I've seen from the Leafs at, at five on five, despite them still looking at times like they don't really know what they're doing, right? Like against Florida, um, yeah. The first two periods, and this is a game the Leafs ultimately ended up dominating on the shot clock, partially score effects that were not, I guess. Even with score adjustments, they wouldn't be adjusted all the way downwards to parity because the Leafs were just that dominant. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like during the first two periods of the Florida game, they looked off. They looked really, really bad. It's very tempting to read psychology into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Justin Bourne has talked about like when you get Nylander back, maybe you're expecting uh, him to carry you or you're not that worried about the opposition or you feel like you can coast. I mean, the Leafs were cleaning up for a while there so easily against teams that... You know, I could certainly understand the feeling that when you come in against a bottom feeder, uh, which in the standings, Florida still is, although they've made a bit of a play lately to try and rise up a little bit. But I could see kind of taking that a little lightly. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that they should or that, you know, it's justifiable, but I suppose I get how they might come out a little flat and then kind of try to charge back. I'm sure Mike Babcock is using that as like, see, you can't take half the game off and then expect you're going to fix it later. Yeah. Um, so I always wonder if coaches are secretly a little glad when there's like the odd kind of slap you upside the head loss like that, yeah. where it's just sort of like, it's very hard to convince people to correct their behavior when they're being rewarded for it constantly. Born even mentioned wins, that so. in the Detroit game where the Leafs kind of decided halfway through the third period. It's like, okay, yeah, it's, or not halfway through, halfway through the second intermission, that's it. It's like, okay, time to try. And then they just immediately scored three goals and, and came <laughs> yeah. back. Bournes made an offhand comment in one of his articles that, like, I wonder if Babcock wanted that to happen or if he was like, I, I, you know, I want, them, I want a teachable moment to say, you can't do that, right? And yeah. that might have worked the other way because he's like, oh, we can do that. Um, yeah. I mean, and he's got to be coaching for the playoffs to some extent, I'm sure. He's yeah. trying to get this team into uh, defunding shape. I still think the Leafs are probably going to finish second in the division. Uh, first is sort of fading from view, especially with that loss to Tampa, unfortunately. Tampa's just been so good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We were catching them. Um, and we might talk about that a little later. At, at the same time, I also don't think Buffalo is this good, mm-hmm. so... You know, if this continues, obviously, you know, if we lose every game this week, then we'll have, like, a depressing follow-up podcast. But uh, it, it does feel like this was maybe an inevitable situation where the bounces went against a, a little bit. Mm-hmm. But as this team kind of settles in, gets more comfortable, and I thought Nylander has looked increasingly at home, although I didn't see most of the Florida game. So take that with a grain of salt. In the Florida game, I, I thought he was pretty mediocre, actually. I thought that was one of his weaker games, like, given the expectations of, like, okay. Yeah. You know, we expect him to kind of ramp up a little bit every game. But other people mm-hmm. have said, oh, you know, he looks more and more like himself. So, you know, different, yeah. reasonable people can differ on that. Um, regarding the, that Florida game also, um, I also think it, it's sort of unfair to say the Leafs lost, or the Leafs came back, I guess, entirely because of score effects were... In the third period, they dominated to the point that, like, even adjusting for, for score and whatnot, like, even if you make extreme adjustments for it, like, more extreme than the ones that we typically use, right, which are based mm-hmm. on previous data, they, they destroyed Florida in that third period, right? Absolutely mm-hmm. dominated them in that third period. 
Um, and they should still get credit for that, right? Like, it, it's still things yeah. that did happen. Just because they were down for that part of the game doesn't mean, you know, we throw away that data. And, like, people have shown, right, that throwing away data, like using Corsi Close, for example, as opposed to Score Adjusted, is almost always worse. Or actually always mm -hmm. worse. There's, there's not a good reason to use Corsi Close. Uh, at least not as of the time the study was done, which is, like, 2014 or 2015. Uh, maybe now things have differed, but I would, I would doubt that. Yeah, so like, you don't want to throw out information if you can. Yeah. When you play well for a stretch, you play well for a stretch. When you play badly, I mean, we wouldn't accept it the other way either. Yeah. If, where, if, you if, know, so when if, the Leafs look like garbage, we say so. Yeah, so people, people have said that, oh, the shot dominance is only because they were training. I think it is in part because they were training, right? I, I think that does make a difference, but there's a reason we score just, and there's a reason we score just the way we do, and that's because we found it's like an optimal way to do things. Right? And, of course, we need a larger sample for this to become truly meaningful. But I don't think it's fair to just dismiss this improvement uh, in, in shot share and in expected goal share as solely down to score effects. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the reality is, is that as much as we try to be, you know, sophisticated fans who look at the process and all this sort of stuff, losses feel bad, wins feel good. Yeah. And so after losses, you feel upset and you're mad at the team for making you feel bad. Mm -hmm. And after wins, you're kind of like, well, it's not that big a deal. Even if you kind of know, gee, that win was a bit gross. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do honestly think, by and large, their performance against Tampa was way more to their credit than some of the games that they won yeah. earlier in the year, which were sometimes a little iffy. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know. again, Tampa's a game where some people will say, oh, they, they only really, like, they started dominating, especially because of special teams and... Um, some five on five in the in the third period, but actually e through even through the second period, the Leafs had uh, more expected goals than Tampa did, right? Yeah, uh, and like that's you're not going to blow them out like two to one in expected goals over two periods, most likely. But if you have like a a decent lead in that, then okay, cool, you're 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 playing well, generally speaking, right? And I, yeah, I, I think the Leafs did. I think you can poke holes in that to some degree, but I doesn't I don't believe you can really um, take away from the larger point, which is that, you know, even in a power play dominated game, the Leafs played mm -hmm. well at five on five against Tampa. And that, that's meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the reality is I think Tampa Bay is the best team in the NHL right now. Yeah. And if you look at that game, any way you slice it, I don't think you can say they were outclassed. And I read some stuff after that that I found kind of confusing. It's like, well, the Leafs still have a long way to go. Yeah. And I'm like, well, the Leafs lost the game and losing sucks. But re the reality is they were out there on the ice. And I've seen the Leafs look like they didn't belong out there. Uh, I used to see it most nights mm -hmm. in previous editions of this team. Uh, no, uh, they're a competitive team. If this comes down to a playoff series with Tampa, I mean, I think Tampa's favored. Yeah, me too. But... I absolutely like our chances pretty well compared to uh, to what they would have been any time previously against the best team in the NHL. Yeah. So, you know, hoping that uh, that this team can stabilize a little bit more. You know, if there is uh, a future where this team is, A, getting the bounces and winning and this, the special teams kind of steady a bit. If this team is, you know, really doing well in shot chair, I think, you know... We're really going to give Tampa a run. Uh, again, I don't know that we're going to catch them, but we could make it interesting. Uh, there's just there's enough to like there, and we have enough of a cushion in terms of points that we got earlier in the year not to get too uh, upset about 
you know, only pulling out the four points in five games. Yeah. So. I, I actually just looked this up. At the end of the second period, uh, the Leafs, if we look at five, through money pucks, five on five, you know, floor, skir, uh, sorry, floor, flurry, score, and venue adjusted uh, expected goals. The At the end of the second period, the Leafs were at like 1.43, and at the end of the, and the Lightning were at 1.3, which is like, okay, that's not like dominating, but you're get, you're ahead. Right. Yeah. You're, you're at, at worst. You're like probably it's an even game, at five mm-hmm. on five. And if the Leafs are playing even games with Tampa at five on five, that's one of the best teams in the league. That's a, that's a win in my book. Yeah. I mean, it sucks that we share a division with them. Yeah. No. It's, I mean, and, it's, it's uh, very annoying that we, that we yeah. do that. Yeah. As, okay. This is gonna be like a, an aside tangent, but I saw like a prominent Penguins blogger be like, I don't remember the divisional playoff model being such an issue when you know. The Penguins ran into the Capitals every year, and I was like, first of all, did you ever listen to the Washington Capitals fan base for one second? Yeah, no, that was, it was a big thing then, too. Everyone was it always like... It felt like all they did was complain about that. Yeah, and justifiably, like the... Yeah. For, for like three or four years, the, the two best teams in the league were facing each other in the second round almost all the time. Yeah, and, you know, I think the system is stupid, and I've thought it since it was instituted, because it's like... It just sets you up to play the same team every year. And, I mean, that's like, by design. They want they want that to yeah. build rivalries and whatnot. I'd like to just say that I don't think that you need to worry about building rivalries too much. Because if you face a team in a playoff series, you hate them I guarantee you, Always. you will loathe them. Always. You, there was a great uh, Down Goes Brown article about that a few years back where it's like the process psychologically of moving through a series. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you start out at the beginning being like, you know, there are some good players on that team. There are some guys I respect. I don't, you know, I don't love them or whatever. And by like game five, you're like, I hope all of those guys get hit by a bus. You know, <laughs> like you're just, you're, you're too embittered and somebody has thrown a questionable hit on one of your guys. And it probably didn't get suspended because the league is bad at that. And it just, it brews up hatred and it makes new rivalries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes the ones that last maybe longer. Then is widely suspected. I mean, the Islanders hate us again for more immediate reasons, but like the bitterness over our series against them forever ago uh, lasted for like a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if you want rivalries, I would say they make themselves. Anyway, that's my little spiel on why the divisional playoff format is dumb, but we have to live with it. Yeah, and it means that, as it says right now, our road out of the division probably goes through. A Buffalo, and then if we do that, B Tampa. Yeah. Before so. before we get into this, I, I just want to talk about that Troy Brower hit on Kasperi Kapitan because you talked about suspensions very briefly. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like Brower's getting suspended. That's fucking bullshit. <laughs> um, to use a technical term, like that hit was late. There was no head mm-hmm. contact, but it was a knee on knee. And last I checked, knees are important for hockey. It, it was just it was reckless. It was a stupid play. It did nothing. There, there was no purpose to it at all. He went, he targeted the knee. Like, Cappy's body was, like, ahead of his knee, and Brower hit his knee. Maybe he's just that bad a skater, and I've seen him skate. He is pretty bad, and he just missed accidentally. I wouldn't put anything past Troy Brower, because he is that terrible a player. But mm. it's just an awful hit. Like, I don't understand what the point of that hit is, and I don't understand why that's not a suspension. And I feel like the only reason is because Kapanen ended up being fine. That's often a huge factor. And that shouldn't be. Because, you know, if Kapanen crumples in a heap and he, you know, tears his ACL on that, Brower wouldn't have necessarily done anything differently. It's just that's the way ligaments are. Like, they're, they're fragile. Things can, 
a shift of a millimeter could make a big difference. It's yeah. absolute garbage that that's not a suspension-worthy hit. And I'm saying this as someone who thought the Hyman suspension was fair, right? I, I think it was inconsistent in that mm. a lot of other hits don't get punished nearly the same way. But if you show me a video of the Hyman hit, so that, in my ideal NHL, that's a two-game suspension. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's fine. I have no issue mm-hmm. with that. That's a valid suspension in my book. I just don't understand yeah. how you can look at that Hyman suspension and then say the Brower hit is not suspendable at all, or not even worthy of a penalty. It's, it's absolute garbage. And like, one of the things that annoys me the most about the NHL is the amount of uncalled interference. Interference happens so often. Every time someone finishes their yeah. check, it's interference. The puck is gone. Oh, yeah. And, look, and we've accepted a very wide margin where it's like, okay, well, he's finishing his check. He can't really stop. And, of course, we all know that there is a huge window where they can stop throwing the hit. Yeah, I'm, I'm a terrible hockey player. Like in my in my beer league, when someone like and there's no obviously no hitting in beer league, but like if someone gives up the puck, like you you make that you re, you realize that pretty quickly, and NHL players are much faster at that than I am. They finish yeah, their, they the, finish the level their of check, agility is yeah they finish way their check higher because that's what they've been taught, and because the league doesn't punish it, and it's just stupid. Mm-hmm. Every time someone dumps the puck in, right, um, the puck could be in the corner and. Almost always there'll be a defender interfering with the player going in. That that shouldn't be allowed. You can get in their way, but there's often like just bear hugs going on there. It's the amount of uncalled interference is absolutely ridiculous. And it's it's clear that the NHL is fine with the way officiating has been handled in that respect because they never made it a point of emphasis the way they did with slashing uh, a year ago mm-hmm. or with faceoffs a year ago. Well, the truth is, is you'd have to revise the entire way that the NHL plays defense, which is like, fine. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, you know, from where we're sitting is probably fine. But the NHL has stakeholders in it that are that include, you know, people who just left the game on the yeah. ice, who play the game, who coach the game. And there's a lot of inertia that goes against that. Like, we talk about, uh, I remember in law school, I there was one legal theorist, and he said, basically, there are a lot of laws that, or, like, legal procedures or maxims or whatever that kind of just keep going, apparently for the reason that everyone just learned that way and they don't want all their learning to be useless. And that seems really silly, and at the time I was like, that's absurd. That's true. No, it's at absolutely least in law. true. No, it's true in, in every yeah. industry. Inertia goes a long way. And yeah, just... and, and so if, if you get used to, this is the way things are, uh, people have a hard time accepting it. I mean, even now, you'll see people defending Tom Wilson, who throws, like ludicrous hits by being like well you know uh they did that to eric lindros and half the time it wasn't called it's like yeah but we don't want that anymore so i do think that uh you know you're right if you really want to speed up the game if you want to make it more of an emphasis on skating and offenses like that start calling interference it's in a lot of cases it won't even be making the game less physical although if you cut down on you know how late a hit can be that's going to do that but half the time it's just like the muggings that go on in the corner where it's like you land on a guy and then you lean on him for an extra 2 seconds with your hand pushing his shoulder down you know i don't need that in the game i don't think that has anything except it slows the guy down and takes him out of the play so yeah i mean that's kind of the the eventual great war that might come if the league ever gets really serious about moving away from it. I don't think it will. I, I mean, I think, as you said, I think there's people in the league who, are, who, who want that, who see value in that. And I guess that that is a matter of opinion. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of, like, in terms of, like, the player safety and, like, 
late hits and whatnot. I, th I think that you can more plausibly argue is like, okay, there's there's no valid reason for that Brower hit to be in the game. Yeah. Right? I, I or that Hyman actually, Well, I mean, Zach Hyman is a good boy, <laughs> and sometimes people make mistakes. But, uh, <laughs> you know, just as an aside, I started working on an article one time, and... It was just sort of like if you went real kind of rational actor sociopath, like you didn't worry all about anything but what got you the win with the way the game was called and judged right now. How would you play? Like what penalties would you take? What things would you throw? And I kind of bailed out before I got too deep into it because I was like, I feel like I'm starting to recommend people be really evil. Yeah, you, but, you start getting into like, I mean, you should just hire guys to like, you know, Tanya Harding people. Yeah, well, what I concluded was that neon knees are potentially really, really devastating for disposing of the opposition, mm -hmm. and I don't think they're adequately called at all. No, they're not called it's too at all. Easy, it's too easy for it to look like just two guys colliding, and just the positioning of the knees looks accidental, and it's really hard to tell. Um, sometimes it can look more deliberate than other times, though. But, uh, yeah, it, uh, it is something that, you, you know, nobody wants to see. And so I wouldn't blame if they, if they did kind of come down on Brower. That said, you know, I'm biased just because Yeah. I just want people to protect Cappy, who's our sweet, beautiful top six player that we've been lauding. So. Yeah. And it's just, it's just frustrating because I don't think there's that many people who want to see hits like that that would take out any player, right? It's, it, the yeah. issue I take with that hit more than more than anything it's just that it was so unnecessary there was no actual advantage gained from that hit in yeah. terms of like, i mean troy brower has to justify his own existence almost yeah you know yeah all right anyways um we're, we're going to discuss i guess um potential kind of playoff uh matchups as, as, as fullman said are the road out of the atlantic division right now we'll almost certainly have to go through tampa in the second round if we make it that far if we in the first round right now we would be facing buffalo and that's interesting because so I think we were both kind of not that high on Buffalo to start the year. We thought they'd be kind of a, a bubble team at best, and they've certainly outperformed mm -hmm. that. And this could just be um, me being stubborn, but I still don't really fear them. No, basically I don't. Um, they're not. One line team is overstating it, but they're bordering on being a one line team. Yeah, and I, I mean. What's, it's a hell of a one line. What Skinner and Eichel have done are, are is crazy, and I expect them to be very good. I don't expect Jeff Skinner to continue this hot run. Um, Jack Eichel might because Jack Eichel is amazing, but you know Skinner is a very a good scorer who has suddenly become a Rocket Richard candidate. Yeah, and a lot of that and is a lot of that is Jack Eichel playing with the star center, and a lot of that is shooting percentage. And I don't think yeah. the I don't think Eichel is responsible for giving him you know Mike Bossy shooting percentage. No. Um, and for the record, right now, Jeff Skinner is shooting 23.5%, which is like that doesn't really happen. I mean, William Carlson uh, had one year where he did it, and everyone was like, but maybe it's sustainable. And it was like... He's shooting 18% now, isn't. actually. Yeah. And 18% uh, is still pretty good. Very good. You know? Like, that's really, really good, I, I should say. And that's more plausible to me. Yeah. Like, the, the, the result is still William Carlson's a good player. 
Like, it, it doesn't come back down to, you know, he's, he's trash. It's just, like, he probably doesn't score 40 goals again. Yeah. And so, Jeff Skinner is probably going to come back to earth a little bit. That said, that's a really deadly first line. <laughs> Absolutely, and, it really is. You know, you have to respect it. Uh, I just don't, I just that, don't fear much else about their roster. I mean, Dalin is going to be incredible, and he already is. Yeah. And he's one of those players where, in April, you know, you'll see a, a different version of him than you see now because, you know, development happens so quickly for yeah. players his age. He's made their defense, like, 50% less of a joke. Yeah. Just by himself. And, you know, like, we loved making fun of them and making fun of Rasmus Ristolainen. Uh, those were the good days, man. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we have to accept that, like, their defense is credible now. They have a bona fide quality top line. Uh, they're, they're getting good goaltending. They're getting good goaltending now. Their forward depth just is not competitive with ours. I'm not saying that they couldn't beat us in a series. They could. Because they could. Yeah. Anyone can beat anyone in this series in the NHL these days. Because, you know, the playoffs eliminate uh, the worst teams. Uh, because they don't qualify. And then it's kind of, it's close enough for anything to happen. But, like, their second line is Shiri, Middlestat, and Okposo. Middlestat has not yet delivered on his widely overrated, <laughs> I want to say, uh, preseason touting. Like, there were a lot of people who were just like, he's going to come in and dominate. And he's not doing that yet. He has 10 he's... points in 34 games. Yeah. Um uh, and I don't know. And that's not to say point, <laughs> like points are obviously not the totality of a player, but... Um, they kind of matter when you are supposedly, you know, a high-end center. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and, you know, it doesn't mean that he's doomed to do that forever. He's still quite young. And it doesn't mean that he's bad or anything like that. It just means that, like, right now, our third line, I would say, beats their second line into pulp. Yeah. And, you know, ditto, their third line doesn't scare me at all. So... I think what you would see happen in a series is that they would have one really good line that they would roll out. A lot. And that line would have to kill us Yeah, for them to win the series. It could, but it probably won't. And we have three lines that are capable of doing really significant damage to them. So all of this is to say Buffalo should still be pretty happy. Like, they look like they're going to be a playoff team. They're better than I thought they would be, so what do I know? But, like, at this point, I'm just, I'm not quaking in my boots about playing Buffalo to the extent that I am a little bit about playing Boston again just because they're scary. <laughs> yeah, and Boston's like, it's, it, I guess you can consider Boston a one-line team as well, but they're a one-line team where the one line's the best line in the league. And then I believe in their yeah. depth more than I believe in Buffalo's depth. Yeah, with reason. And their defense is better. So, they're better at... I would say everything, but um, so that's the main difference. Yeah, um, Boston's but, just been brutalized with injuries, and right now they're not even the, in the first wild card spot. Montreal is. Yeah, and you know, Montreal's another interesting thing where it's like, could they make the wild card? Sure, they could. Yeah, you know, they're they're like a decent shot share team right now. Uh, their goaltending has undermined them to some extent, although Carey Price has been a little better lately. But, oof. Yeah, that contract, that contract. is not is not going to look good. I mean, it already yeah. it already looks really, really, really bad. You know what the tra the tragedy of it is that of all the things that Mark Bergevin has done, the Carey Price contract was a mistake, maybe, but it's more understandable than like the Weber Saban trade, for example, from where I'm sitting. Like, I get why he paid Carey Price all that money, even if you say, well, you should never give a goalie that much money. Yeah, but he had the best one in the world at the time. Like, I get where he was coming from. It's just if Price doesn't 
rebound, it's going to be awful. But anyway, all of that said, you know, they're, they're kind of cruising along in the direction of a playoff spot. And I, you know, I could easily see them making it because the Metro isn't that strong. But yeah. from where we're sitting right now, Buffalo seems to be there. And it would take, I'm it would either, not it, too worried. It would either be Buffalo or Boston, right? Cause, and yeah. that would result with, assuming Toronto stays in the 2-3 matchup in some form, which I think is relatively likely, um, mm-hmm. it would require Boston moving up a lot and Buffalo moving down a fair bit because Buffalo has like a seven-point cushion on, yeah. on Boston now. And that, that's a lot of points in hand. Yeah. Right, and that, that that's what that, like I think Buffalo is probably a league average team at this point, and maybe a little better because they they have they're a league average team that's top heavy, which I think is better than being a league league average team that is just league average everywhere. Yeah, because uh, you you know having a star that can kind of win a game for you, it, it seems consistent with the strong link idea yeah. of hockey. And also where it's in like a in a playoff stars series, are you can you can play Jack Eichel twenty seven minutes a night for seven games if you need to. Yeah. That's the other thing, and that is part of how the game changes come to playoff time. So, you know, they're real, and they have decent hope of getting better, although I don't know exactly if what they have in the pipeline is going to make the difference, because Alex Nylander is kind of... We're not sure what he's going to be at this point, but still, Buffalo has a lot to hope for for the future. Yeah. That said, this year, uh, for a first-round draw... They could beat us, but I like our chances. Yeah, I'd say we're, like, comfortable favorites in that. But yeah. with NHL hockey, that means, like, I think to win the series, we have, like, a 65 to 70% chance. Yeah, right? and that, that, like, like, it can it, go crazy. It's very it. easy for that to go the other way. Yeah, so I hope that was sort of reassuring. It's like, yeah, I mean, we're good, but I, it may matter I think we're, we're quite rosy for what we are. And, I mean, I don't – I think part of the reason is because – the. I, I, I do feel much better about the Leafs actually outplaying teams at 5-on-5, five five, given what they've shown over the last few games. Like Even, even though I don't think this is them at their best, but the, on the whole, they've, they've been good. And as I said before, I don't think that's entirely attributable to just you know score effects and things like that. I think it's a kind of overly reductive and ignoring the, the fact that, hey, the Leafs did actually just add a first-line winger, even if he's not at, his, even if he's not at peak potential yet. Yeah, and he makes a difference. That makes that makes a difference. It makes a big knock-on effect, right? Because now, like, now you've, you've given Kadri essentially the best line mate he's had since Mitch Marner last year. Yeah, right. And we, we and, saw how well that line worked. Yeah, and Kadri was having like that weird stretch early in the year where he was playing with Lindholm and Brown, right? And they were getting like fifty-eight percent of the shots for a while there. <laughs> um, but like they were all like you know weak, and they were all like perimeter shots yeah. or like uh, Kadri hitting the post. Um, which he continues to do. But, like, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot to like there. Mm-hmm. The problem is Tampa. And so we have a decent chance against Tampa. I don't see any way Tampa's not the favorite in that series. Yeah. I just can't see it. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not, barring, like, injury, it's it's hard to see Tampa being the underdog in any series. And, again, like, Hockey is so random that a lot of the times, you know, what we're doing is basically saying, yeah, I mean, this will probably happen, but who knows, right? And then it's, that's sort of yeah. probably not the, the most, I don't know, interesting thing or interesting take-wise, but that's that's an intro hockey, man. Like, it's it's a crapshoot. Yeah. It's a crapshoot. I mean, I'd love to come in every week and just be like, we are going to slaughter the goddamn Buffalo Sabres, you know, just like it was like the, the winning of the West or something. We're going to hunt them to extinction. But the reality is, is that 
things can happen. Looking at up and down the Tampa lineup, I see a line with uh, Palat, Stamkos, and Yanni Gourd. And I think the Leafs at their best can put up a top line against that. But then the second line is Johnson, Braden Point, and Nikita Kucherov. Yikes. And that is fucking terrifying. That's a really... That, and, even, and their third line beyond that <laughs> is, is still quite good, right? Like, Serenity's yeah, a good like player. We, Adam Ernie's a good player. Yeah, I was actually looking at this today on, like, the daily face-off stuff. And they actually let, uh, rank... Um, lines relative to the league yeah and so they think we have the best third line in the nhl and they think tampa has the second best third line in the nhl Mm -hmm. and you think okay well that's good i mean we're still ahead but we kind of need to be a lot better than them at forward because on defense they have victor hedman ryan mcdonough anton strallman and mikhail sergachev uh, not all in the top four, actually. Right now, they're playing Dan Girardi at first line right defense, which is one of those things where I have to assume it makes sense. Well, the, on the, 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 the I head, mean, they're doing well. The Hedman Girardi pairing is like 55% Corsi or something absurd like that. Yeah, whereas it's sort of like if, you know, what Corsi would we have if you put me up with Victor Hedman? Like, yeah. It'd probably be. Now, but granted, Dan Girardi is done pretty decently there and he was reputed to be a complete boat anchor in uh, in new york so that's to his credit and coburn and sergachev are just clowning people on the third pair. they're like the more advanced version of like dermot and ozaganov right with, with sergachev yeah. playing the dermot part yeah where he you know they're just carrying them so the result is there is like they probably beat us every defense pairing like yeah top to bottom yeah you know so <laughs> That's kind of the scary thing where it's, uh, it's like you're saying maybe we can play them even or on good days better at forward. Mm-hmm. But the deficit at defense is huge. And then it comes down to, you know, goaltending. Anderson is his best, is as good as anybody, and so is Vasilevsky. Right. And, it's going to come down to who's hot on the day of. Yeah, and I mean, like, we're talking about the rosters, but of, of course these all interact in like kind of unknowable ways in, in some respects, yeah. right? Where, like, the, the Leafs kind of dummied Tampa. Um, despite Tampa having, you know, far, far better defense. But, you know, that's because yeah. that's in single games, that these things happen. Like, one team will mm-hmm. dominate the other, and it'll, it'll go against our expectations. Yeah, and so, you, you know, you just have to hope that that game was representative in that way, but that Vasilevsky gets a cold or something. Yeah, and, so. and <laughs> I, I do think that the, the Leafs and Tampa are both teams that they're get, it'll be a fun series, and I think they'll look at each other and be like, okay, yeah, we, we think we're better than you, and they'll, they'll just play. Yeah. Right. Like, it, and it, it'll be fun from that perspective. It won't be like, oh, we gotta like mess this guy up. We gotta intimidate Braden Point. We gotta intimidate Mitch Marner. Yeah. It's like, Although, <laughs> just as an aside, after the Boston loss uh, a couple weeks ago, um, people were getting real upset about the physicality thing with the Leafs, and people were talking about Boston being more physical than us and intimidating us, and there was a lot of upset about like. What do we do now? And then, you know, people were saying, we may not even play Boston this year. They're really struggling. And then someone was like, well, Tampa's a pretty physical team, too. And I'm like, are they? Like, they have some guys who are physical. Like, Victor Hedman's a physical guy. He's imposing. He's huge. Yeah. And he's, like, he's built, like, you know, an ox. Yeah. So he can hurt you. P- and Palat Ryan Callahan is... used to be intimidating. Yeah. But... But, like, also half of their forward lineup is guys who are quite small. 
And that's kind of been almost Tampa's marketing inefficiency lately, right. which is just recognizing that short players can be good, like Braden Point, mm-hmm. who is bordering on considered too small to be a center, and he's, like, dominating the NHL. So, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I'm not worried about the physicality aspect of playing against Tampa, uh, which is, I'm sorry, setting us up to get absolutely leveled on some ugly hit that we all debate for the days after, but... yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm worried about Tampa outplaying us. I'm not really worried about them beating us up physically. Like, yeah, it, they're just really good. Yeah, they're they're just a, re- a really really good team. Um, so I mean, I don't know. I guess we we've kind of discussed the Leafs and who they might play more or less. Uh, I think the broad takeaway is there are encouraging signs beyond when you look beyond the the score lines of the last five games, right? And obviously yeah. we have to wait for to see more. But mm-hmm. I don't think these games have really shifted what we think um, the Leafs are in a negative way. If anything, it's maybe moved it in the positive direction or, or neutrally. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not worried long-term about the penalty kill or the, or the power play. The power play hasn't been scoring, mm-hmm. but they're still generating a lot of chances. And I, I, think, I think teams have gotten better at scouting them out. But yeah. I, I also think but- the Leafs will figure out ways around it's the kind of a cat and mouse game and uh, they're still generating a ton of chances i mean they yeah. they I, th- they dummied tampa bay's penalty kill yeah i mean there was all this stuff about like teams that figured out you know that mitch monitor doesn't shoot just now like yeah they've been, that's been a scouting <laughs> report on him forever right yeah and that's what i wonder is like i mean i i could have told you that you know, I think in September. I think teams are getting and, better you know, he, at sniffing out the like, making sure, like, really just committing to take away the crossing pass to from Marner to Matthews. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. That's a smart adjustment. I, I think they'll find ways around that. Um, the the whole point of a power play is like you literally can't take away every option. You don't have enough people to. Yeah, and you know, I'm very comfortable with how well positioned we are to uh, to do it. So this is like the. <laughs> I promise we're not trying to be contrarian because like. After the Leafs win for a while, we're like, oh, there are some warning signs there. And after the Leafs lose, we're like, honestly, things could not be better. So, <laughs> I mean, the, the penalty kill is, is more worrisome, yeah. I think, just because it's always been kind of propped up on Anderson's brilliance rather than shot dominance and, like, really stifling teams. Uh, I think they're mm-hmm. kind of average or a bit below in that respect of, like, you know, stopping scoring chances. But then Anderson has kind of saved us quite a few times. Yeah. Um, so. so there's more valid concern for, for that, in my opinion. I, I can see that being an issue, but um, it's also it's also something where I don't know. I I, I guess I kind of just view special teams as on average we're going to get the better of it. If we can improve our special, our penalty kill, that would be great. I don't have any particularly good suggestions on how to do that. Yeah, well, I mean it's tough. You, you wonder about the personnel. You wonder about are they keeping shots to the outside to uh, a good enough extent, you know, because that's more of a thing on the penalty yeah, kill. Yeah, yeah, shot quality is, like, a more definable part of a team's success at on the on the power play. Yeah, so so we'll see about that. But by and large, you, you know, things are, are pretty good. But the Leafs have suffered a devastating loss in a trade lately, and we probably ought to address it. Yeah, so um, the Josh Levo Josh trade. Levo, yeah. yeah. So Josh Levo was traded, as most people know, to the Vancouver Canucks. For an individual named Michael uh, Carcioni, I think is the pronunciation, and I'm probably wrong about that. You probably but I'm are, doing my best. But I don't know, so I'm not going to correct you. 
That's what I've been told. I'm just saying. And so, uh, Josh Levo, as you might expect, going to Vancouver, which does not have a tremendous amount of winger depth, uh, is getting much more opportunity than he was getting in Toronto. And so he's racked up uh, three goals, one assist in seven games. He's been playing some time with uh, Elias Pettersson. Who is great. Which is, who is so good. There's like a, we don't know if they're kidding or not, sort of thing going around where Canucks fans are like, would we take Pettersson or McDavid? And it's like, okay, that's bananas. But uh, Pettersson is legit going to be a superstar. Like he's going to be so good. And so playing on his wing is a very nice way uh, to get some points. And so a lot of people are saying, look, we traded away a guy who is scoring at a little over half a point per game. He's got some goals. Uh, we got back a guy who's pretty much an AHL player. I mean, I don't want to say never, but probably. Mm-hmm. And some people are kind of upset about that. And, well, I get it. But there are a couple things going on there. One, the Leafs are sufficiently deep at forward that it really just is hard to uh, to find space for everybody. Like, you know, I wasn't really clamoring to move Josh Levo off the lineup this season just because the Leafs had so many players who were able to do it. You know, Andreas Janssen, I'm really happy to give the chance to. Obviously, I love Zach Hyman. And then Patrick Marlowe was kind of stuck there on his contract. Right. Um. So, you know, there wasn't space for him there. Now, they could have, if they wanted to, uh, just kept him in the press box. But they made a deal, or not a deal, but they made a promise to Josh Levo at the start of the season that they weren't going to do that again. Uh, They said, you know, if there was a prospect of him being a healthy scratch, and it didn't look like there was going to be a clear step back into the lineup for him anytime soon, they would find a trade for him. And so... It's hard to get a good return for your 13th forward. Uh, that's just the, the nature of the game. And so, all things considered, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think it is somewhat to uh, Kyle Dubas's credit that, you know, he, may, he gave a player his word and he honored it. And you, you know, you, you like to, to think that that might be rewarded in the long term, you know, if this becomes known as a, a good organization that is going to deal fairly with its players and that keeps its promises. Um, so, all that considered, I think that it's it's kind of fine and it's understandable. Josh Levo might uh, put up some decent totals with the Vancouver Canucks. I think he's going to cool off from this. But, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's kind of we lost a trade on talent and I'm okay with it, I guess, is my bottom line. Yeah, I largely feel the same way. I'm not um, not terribly bothered by it. I mean, you could argue, oh, maybe we should have traded, I don't know, Ennis instead, or found a way to like ro- rotate them in and out. I don't think players would love the rotation idea. Um, yeah. And I think that that's kind of a hard sell. Whether you can argue that, oh, Mike Babcock should get on that and Dubas needs to impose his will on him. I mean, I think to some extent you pick your battles. Yeah. Uh, I'm not... Fu- if. You, you could have said we should play Levo higher. I, I don't... Maybe you could, but I don't see a incredibly impressive case for him to be much higher than anyone else he, he could possibly displace, uh, just given his, his role on the team. Uh, like You can put him where, say, Andreas Janssen is now. Then you're taking away Andreas Janssen's minutes, and he probably has more value long-term to the organization. Yeah, um, yeah it's just... 
it, it, I, I agree with you. Uh, it, it's nice that the Leafs did something yeah. kind of it, honorable. It's good. And, you know, truth be told, I don't know how many fan bases get this kind of uptight about a f- guy who was a fourth-line forward for us yeah. and was known to be, but it became such a thing about him never getting in, uh, and it became, like, kind of a jokey thing. I made, like, a jokey hashtag at one point called Freevo for Free Levo that I was like, oh, this is just, like, a stupid thing. And it got, like, RT'd a bunch, mm-hmm. and, like, it got way out of control for, like, something I was like, this is just me being stupid. But, um... I really don't think that this is that big a deal, except it became a flashpoint in this ongoing strange thing that we keep seeing where a lot of people are mad at Mike Babcock about a lot of things. And we've talked before about, you know, I like to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think, you know, we respect that he knows a lot of things. Um, And so I think that just the fact that Levo was being scratched... And you would point to, you know, this player should have been gone. Well, I, I would rather play Josh Levo than Matt Martin. But that wasn't happening this year. This year it was just Josh Levo was squeezed out of a very, very deep forward lineup. Yeah. And so I think that that's not Mike Babcock's fault, and I think that that's fine. Yeah, it's just I it's I struggle to get too worked up over, over Levo. I'm happy he's doing well. And you know, we talked about this when Alan was last on the podcast as it relates to the Jake Dodgson situation. It's like, you'd like to hope that the team you support also treats people fairly and also, you know, it is just generally not a scummy organization. And not that this is like a matter of incredible importance. And this is, this is an easy promise to keep, you know, um, if Dubis, you know, with his reported comments about not trading William Neander, if Columbus offers a Seth Jones for him tomorrow and he doesn't pull the trigger on that based on his word, that's kind of a more meaningful indication of how seriously he takes his, his word. Um, In this case, it's kind of a very minimal loss to the Leafs and it does a good thing. And, for, for Levo, it's not something I really have any sort of issue with whatsoever. Yeah, I, I think that that's good. And, you know, especially with this sort of stuff, you know, being honorable in your dealings with players is a good way of doing business. And so Kyle Dubas, I think in general, has tried to emphasize some of that. Like he's been very clear in, in his willingness to make promises and his emphasis to players. You know, we want you here. We want to build around you, and he's trying to keep his word. So I, I think by and large that's uh, that's creditable. So happy trails, Josh. You are gonna get into the lineup a lot more easily in Vancouver. I think <laughs> I don't think he's getting scratched anymore for a while. No, and I mean, so. playing with Elias Pettersson, that like that's a great opportunity. He and Levo's a free agent at the end of the year. You can put up some nice numbers there, and you know, get a full time job somewhere else, or even stay in Vancouver. Like that's a good opportunity for him, and I'm happy he's getting it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, do you know what else? We were talking about, like, I guess, um, smart things to do and smart ways to discuss things. Um, Would you say negotiating contracts in the media is a smart thing to do? (laughs) It depends. Um, I would not want to do it if I were Kyle Dubas. I would want to keep everything out. However, that said, um, if I were trying to get someone to offer sheet me, for one thing, I'd negotiate in the media. Yeah, so Kyle Dubas has made some, some comments uh, he, he had a media availability. It, it's kind of weird. We're not used to this because Dude Amarato like never talked to media unless he like very small, very uh, kind of controlled situations. Um, he turned away if they felt the camera was on him. Yeah, but like he was very scared of media. Yeah, <laughs> but Dubis gave a, a quick chat to the to the media. Katya wrote up kind of the salient points about it on, on PPP already, so you can check him out there. But 
the basis of it is it's pretty straightforward. There's, there's a couple interesting things, um, which I'll just summarize quickly, and we're not going to really discuss further. And there's some that we will. Um, he said that you know, the Leafs are still trying to look at signing Jake Gardner. Uh, and you know it, it's tough because there's only so much to go around. I think that's – I don't even know if that's necessarily true. I'm going to take it at face value and say it is. But he's also going to be like he, – he's not going to say, oh, no, you know, he's gone. Right? Like, yeah. it, it's kind of I, – I don't read too much into that. Um, everyone knows that the Leafs would like to keep Gardner because, let's face it, whatever you think of him, he is at worst the Leafs' third best defenseman. And that's a, with a very, very rosy interpretation of how Travis Dermott has done. Mm-hmm. Um, and – you know, the third best defenseman on a team without really anything else behind him. Uh, you don't really want to lose that if you can avoid it. So he, he said that. He talked about um, he talked about wanting to get the Marner and Matthews contracts done earlier this time. And, you know, hopefully having them wrapped up well in advance of July 1st, which is, which is good. But again, he sort of has to say that. Yeah. Um, and then he made some comments about offer sheets, basically saying, I am not worried about an offer sheet. Yeah. Basically saying, come at me, bro, to <laughs> every NHL GM. And I think he's completely right on this. Um, the, the point he makes, you know, it wasn't as simple as saying, like, I'm not worried. Um, he, he said, like, half the teams in the league have a very talented RFA who is going to be, um, well, very talented RFA who is going to get a lot of money, essentially. And mm-hmm. they have to worry about their own house before they really start targeting people. Um it's it, it, interesting that it always comes up that, and this is the point Dubas made, only Toronto seems to be the subject of offer sheets. Tampa Bay has a worse cap crunch than we do. No, but no one is saying, oh, well, you know, Braden Point's going to sign a $35 million deal. You yeah. know, AAV or whatever. Like, it's, um, the, the abs have Miko Rantanen, who might win the Art Ross, and no one's saying, oh, well, he is going to get offer sheeted for sure. It's always about the Leafs, Right. And, and yeah, because what do people click yeah, on? Yeah, exactly. Right. right? So. Like we're we run we, we help run a media site. We're not ignorant of the fact that that stuff sells. Mm-hmm. That's part of why we're discussing it now. Yeah, right? it, and it's fine. Yeah, that, and but... we don't have an issue with that. Like that's no. you, you you write what people want to read. You look into what people want to are interested about, and people are interested in the Leafs. So that so that's fine. But Dubis rightly points out that they're far from the, the Leafs are far from the only team in this situation. There's many teams who are going to have high price RFAs and cap crunches and they are all potentially easy to offer sheet. Um, you, you, you wrote an article, I think, a couple of weeks ago, right, just saying this is not going yeah. to happen. Do you want to just quickly summarize it? Because it will do it more eloquently than my rambling will. Well, uh, the, the basic thing is one, offer sheets basically don't happen in the sense not that offer sheets aren't being sent to players ever because we don't know for sure. But no player has signed an offer sheet since early 2013. Uh Teams almost always match. Like, the only time in the last 19 years that a team didn't match an offer sheet, and there haven't been that many to begin with, but the only time was Dustin Penner, who was, like, not, you know... He, he was a good player at the time, but he's not anything to throw a parade over. Um, and so, you combine that with the fact that to offer sheet someone who's really a high value, one, you have to have a lot of money, and I mean real money, which is kind of taken for granted, especially in the Toronto media market, a lot of teams would find it unpleasant to have to shell out a large amount of money for an RFA. And that shouldn't be forgotten. And in addition to having the money and the cap space, you also need to have a willingness to give up a lot of picks, probably four first-round picks, Mm -hmm. 
for the money that we're talking about for Marner and Matthews. Or rant and um, point, for that matter. Or rant and point, yeah, uh, conceivably. So, all of that kind of adds up to, it's hard to be in a really good situation, and the Leafs would almost certainly match. Now, I saw... I'm still kind of shell-shocked by this, because <laughs> I... know I, you're referring to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I read this, and it was Eric Dehatchik, who's, like, a veteran reporter, and, like, I'm not trying to, like call him out or something but he laid out a potential offer sheet scenario and i was like oh this will be very fascinating and so he was like say the arizona coyotes say that the most important thing that they can ever do as a franchise is to land austin matthews and bring him home because austin matthews comes from arizona so far i get it uh arizona has the cap space yes they do um i don't think arizona has much in the way of money yeah because they are infamously broke, and the franchise is, by all accounts, indebted to the hilt. So, like, already I'm a bit like, hmm, isn't that a bit curious? But then the theory went on to be like, and you know what? Before I go off incredulously at this, why don't I make sure I get the exact quote here? Because I don't want to misquote it, uh, because this is something that I myself have kind of struggled to understand. Right. But... Here's the quote. Let's say for the sake of argument that the Arizona Coyotes believe that the single most important move they can make as an organization is to bring Matthews home. Okay. Strategically, how could a team manage it? Well, one possibility would be signing Marner to an offer sheet first and offer a max contract. The Leafs would almost certainly have to match. Okay. Very unclear what so, the max contract is in that setting. Because right. it wouldn't make sense so if it's the usual term. <laughs> yeah, so a max contract, you there hasn't been one, to my knowledge, in the NHL ever. But a max contract in the NBA is the maximum that you're allowed to offer under the CBA to a player. Yeah. In the NHL, the max that you're allowed to offer to a player in a given year is 20% of the salary cap. So, assuming an $83 million cap... Uh, next season a max contract would be paying mitch marner a little short of 17 million a year i don't think the arizona coyotes are going to make mitch marner the highest paid player in the nhl by like four million dollars i don't think they can even if they wanted to if they did the leafs would be like well okay because you're not going to pay your second best player, $17 million a year in the NHL. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think that that's uh, crazy to say because no one is even close to that level of salary. Like, the highest paid player right now is McDavid in AAV at 12.5. And then the theory went on to say that if they did at that point, the Coyotes could turn around and sign Matthews to a max offer sheet as well. I, I don't know, man. <clears throat> yeah, um, they already lost me at the Leafs would certainly have to match because they wouldn't. Yeah. So the only thing I can think of is that he's using max contract in a way that most people don't, which is just to say that it would be the highest compensation bracket in ter- in terms of like it would cost four first round picks. But I don't think that that's really that big a deal either. Like if the Coyotes suddenly you know inherit a bunch of money from Grandma or something, and they have the money to offer sheet Marner at 11 million and Matthews at 13, the Leafs can match that. 
it's not painless, but they can and I think would do it. Mm-hmm. So, and then, I mean, we've brought this point up a bunch. Why, why are Marner and Matthew signing this contract? Yeah, like maybe you think Matthews really, really wants to go home. But even then, that's really speculative, and that's only one of the two pieces in this weird little moving thing. Right. So they get. Um, I mean, at that point, if they sign that deal, and it's just in order to maximize their earnings, they're they're running the risk of, okay, you're going to maximize your earnings, but not in the place where you want to to do it. So like, it's an interesting, yeah, an interesting mean, scenario where like they would have to be okay with both options, and mm-hmm. I think most players and especially players on the Leafs right now who know that hey we're on a really good team that could be a potential contender year in year out um I think they'll be hesitant to to sign them Uh, we we, we saw with William Nylander who has no attachment to Toronto besides the time he has spent here and Mm -hmm. his relationship with the team and the organization who was ripe for an offer sheet for five months yeah the door was wide open there and, like, if you were ever going to do it, you really would have had to think about it in his case. Or he would have, you know? And maybe teams were interested, but either they weren't or he wasn't. By most accounts, he wasn't. So it's like... I think players are I, generally... They, they, I think players often don't sign these. Especially, like, the high-end players who know they're probably going to get taken care of anyways. Mm-hmm. You can't take it for granted yeah. that the subject of these offer sheets will sign them. Especially because it'll cause tension within their team. Yeah, I, I mean, there are some guys who are just going to say, yeah, screw it, I'm going to go for the money. And to be clear, I won't say that's never happened. Right. Uh, there's one prominent example, and it says something that this is how far back I have to go for it, but in 1998, Sergei Fedorov. Yes. But, and it, it's, it's caused drama within that team that lasts even to this day. Fedorov doesn't yeah. have his number retired. Even though yeah, he, Detroit like, is, he, he, is still a bit hurt. He's clearly like, but, worthy of getting that honor. Oh, he's a, he was an incredible player. But that said, Detroit still matched. Like, I think when Kyle Dubas says, we're not worried about that and we'll match if it happens, that I don't think is a ploy. I think that's just visibly true. Like, you can do the math. They can and they would. Unless someone sent an offer sheet that was insane. Like, again, if it comes to... if. On the first reading of this scenario, if it were like a $17 million-ish dollar offer sheet, then yeah, that would be open to question. But again, that would be nuts. I don't think most teams can do that, and I don't think any team would. So yeah, I'm with Kyle Dubas on this one where it's like, I'm not concerned. What's more reasonable, <laughs> what's more likely, and I wouldn't say this is likely in an absolute sense, but it's relatively more likely, is for a mid-tier guy to get poached, right? Where, yeah, like, for example, the Leafs... Um, they can ab- absorb a million, two million overpayment for Matthews and Marner, and they do that because those guys are so important to have on your team that even if you don't get them at an optimal number, you're better off having them than not because they just provide so much value in terms of wins, in terms of their ability to elevate other players, yada, yada, yada. Kasperi yeah. Captain, let's say they least value him at, a three point, at 3.5 million, right? Um, and yeah. someone decides to sign him on an offer sheet, sign him to an offer sheet worth 5 million over five years, let's say. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's much more attractive to Captain. That's a very significant increase in salary when you look at it as a percentage, right? That's like mm-hmm. a, a 33% increase in salary. Um, and the compensation is not very high. Sorry. Sorry, what did you say? 66, isn't it? Oh, wait, no, I'm doing the math. Oh, why do I ever question you on that? <laughs> I'm sorry, carry on. Um, yeah, so... 
sorry, I was not finishing a thought there. Um, yeah, so it, it's attractive for Kapitan. The compensation is not enormous. Like, that, at that point, it might just be, like, two second-round picks or, like, I, I'm, whatever the actual numbers are. I don't have the compensation chart in front of me, but it's it's not enormous. You can, you can survive it. And that is a deal where the Leafs would be like, okay, if we had no other star players who we had to overpay or who had to pay fairly, um, we could sign that, but we do, and therefore we can't. Right? So... Th- then you could see them okay, saying, okay, you know what, we can't match this on Kapanen. But in that case, often what a team would do, and this is what Burke did to get Kessel, is like le- use the offer sheet as leverage and then just trade the assets directly. Yeah. Right? And you um, might be able to get... Which is very possible. Yeah, you might be able so. to find a better match there, especially if you're the Leafs and you don't necessarily love picks right now, or and if, if that team doesn't want to give up pick, you know, you can, you can figure something out there. So someone like Kapanen or Janssen, I think, is a more likely person to leave the Leafs via restricted free agency than either of the stars. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I don't think either is particularly likely, but the RFA system is just not really set up for these high price players to, to move because as you said, so many things need to go right. The player needs to want to uh, either maximize their dollars to the detriment of everything else um, and or, or leave the organization. The team needs to have cap space, all their picks, and be will, an actual cash in order to present a really compelling offer, especially with lockout protection nowadays. So yeah. it, it, a lot needs to happen. Um, none of it has ever really happened before with these high price for agents. It's, it's hurt by the fact that there's so many guys. Like I, I didn't, Matthew Kachuk, uh, Kyle Connor, Patrick Laine, those are three more guys who are potentially yeah. all sitting ducks. Winnipeg has a worse cap situation, not cap situation, but a worse cap crunch than we do um, because they've signed some expensive deals as well. It's there's a lot of teams ripe for getting for having star players getting poached if the circumstances align themselves. But based on recent history, the circumstances don't align themselves very often. Either the player won't want to move, or uh, the teams will not uh, want to sign a, an offer sheet that is just going to get matched and open themselves up to retribution. There's there's a lot of things that have to go right. And none of it has in the past, or not all yeah, of it has in the so. past. Yeah. So. By and large, I, I you know where I'm not worried. Certainly on the Matthews and Marner front, this is all putting aside that I suspect talks are ongoing yeah, for both there. And even if you know, certainly I'm sure Marner wants to wait until the end of the season when he, I mean, Christ, he might have a scoring trophy. Who knows? But uh, uh, but after he's put up a, a really nice number, he'd want to negotiate then. But there's still time between then and July first. Uh, to, uh, to come to an agreement before an offer sheet is even a possibility. And I think it'll happen for at least one of the two, and ideally both. So, yeah, all of those things add up to offer sheets don't matter very much. And I like talking about the Leafs. I like talking about all sorts of stuff. And I am fascinated by different ways to improve your team. But I do think that some of the chatter about offer sheets happening is kind of credulous and it happens every year (laughs) it's like but these don't happen so i feel like that should kind of be in the parentheses of every headline on offer sheet it's like someone might offer sheet toronto stars but parentheses it doesn't really happen Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah um yeah the other thing we should discuss and you know we're we're getting close to this the finishing time here but this will probably be out of the news cycle by next week and i didn't want to discuss it um the Athletic had a, a piece on Mitch Marner uh, that was essentially about his, his journey and the, the work he's put in to become the superstar level player that he is. 
Uh, and there was a couple things that kind of jumped out to me. Um, the first was the title, which is, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something to the effect of how Mitch Marner has proved all his doubters wrong. And I, I don't doubt that Mitch Marner had doubters, especially young in his career. He's told stories about people like chirping him with being like, oh, I hope you enjoyed this level because you're never making it any higher because of your size, right? Um, yeah. And first off, those people are kind of assholes. Who says that to a 12-year-old? Um, yeah. But, 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 you know, people can be yeah. shitty. <laughs> but secondly, like, Mitch Marner was the fourth overall pick in the most stacked draft since 2003. Everyone thought he yeah. was good. Like, like, really? I th- there, there were people who were like, oh, you know, he's still too small, which is always bizarre to me because he's like 5'11". He's not even that short. He's, he's a skinny guy, but like, you know. He's super boyish yeah, looking. That's the thing. It's like he looks face. young. Um, but yeah. like, it's weird being like, oh, no one believed in me um, when you were like the fourth overall pick and incredibly highly decorated and had all of these accolades going with you. Like, uh, it's just a weird framing, and I don't really blame that on the article at all. I just thought that was so a somewhat odd choice of headline. Um, in the article itself, uh, there's, it features extensive quotes from Paul Marner, Mitch Marner's father, who has quite a reputation in Toronto hockey circles as being um, a, a very typical hockey parent. And Typical and yet to the extreme yeah. degree. I, like, I, don't, I want to be careful because this is all secondhand yeah. and just sort of... But, He's already blocked me on Twitter. Uh, I have nothing to lose. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he has <laughs> blocked me, too. I haven't checked lately. But uh, he is very vocal and energetic in promoting his son, yeah. and that's totally understandable and fine. His son is awesome. But uh, <laughs> he often feels like uh, he deserves more respect than he's gotten. Right. Uh, and look, we so. want to make it clear. Like, I think it's very hard to begrudge a parent for supporting their their child in whatever way they see fit as long as they're not really harming anyone or anything like that and you know that that's what paul marner has has done he supported his son the way he feels is best right and i'm not a parent Mm -hmm. i'm not here to judge that but um there are points in this article and throughout his various um you know kind of things that he's done that have been chronicled throughout the media where he comes off as um, a little extreme and kind of a pain to deal with if you had to deal with him at, in this situation. That's probably the nicest way I could put it. Yes. Um, I find it kind of interesting, the differential here, because throughout the whole William Nylander thing, there were ubiquitous rumors that Michael Nylander was kind of driving the bus there. Mm-hmm. Like, that he was really kind of driving Nylander to hold out. And to his credit, I would say, Michael Nylander didn't say anything. Didn't say a word. For the most of it. Yeah, he kept quiet. And then after it resolved, he said, you know, Nylander's a very strong personality. He wanted to do what he wanted to do, and that was it. And he basically said, like, look, I'm, I'm his dad, but that's it. Uh, and you can believe that as much as you want, but there was a lot of speculation to fill in the blanks there. Whereas with Paul Marner, Paul Marner is this close to telling you, like, my son ought to be the best player in the NHL. Like, or behind uh, Connor McDavid. You know, like, he's saying, like, this guy is captain material. This guy is superstar material. And Mitch Marner is really good. Um, I don't know if he's worth, say, $12 million a year. Yeah. But, he's, um, he's an amazing player. And, like, 
I, I yeah. we should also make this clear that like whatever we think of Paul Marner's tactics, that does not reflect at all on on Mitch. He shouldn't be made to answer for yeah what his dad is doing or is not doing. And the same was true of William Nander. Um, it's always a delicate scenario. You never want to criticize the way, as I said, someone is choosing to support their child. But uh, a lot of Mar- Paul Marner's comments are they're it's hard to interpret them as any other way than like helicopter parenting to an extreme hockey degree yeah so um and yeah it's interesting because he he's such an avid booster for for marner as for his son as as i'm sure all pretty much all parents are behind the scenes but he's very public about it yeah, and some people would say, well, he just says... What know, everyone's thinking. The quiet yeah. part loud or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it, it just makes you wonder going into this negotiation process. Um, and ideally, this will be a lot smoother. Kyle Dubas wants it to be a lot smoother. We want it to be a lot smoother. But he is going to try to get a decent deal for the franchise. Um, and so if this kind of drags on, I have a bit of an uneasy feeling as to what might get said <laughs> uh, to reporters or whatever. Because the Nylander thing, for all there was a lot of upset about it, there wasn't really a leak from it that said anything worse than the sides are a bit frustrated with each other. You know, like, we were losing our minds. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, the emphasis on both sides was, we want him to, to play here, he wants to play in Toronto... Uh, you know, there's not a lot of movement, but, you, you know, we still want to get this done. And so I'm wondering if it'll be quite that uh, harmonious is maybe the wrong word, but at least, like, not toxic. <laughs> so I hope it doesn't, you know, go anywhere in that direction and we're a long way out. But yeah, it, it, it just is a bit striking. It's something to, to keep an eye on, I suppose. It, it might, as you said, suggest that for better or for worse and likely for worse, um, this negotiation, if it becomes prolonged, might have more, there might be more going on in the media about it. Yeah, so. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle your seatbelts if, you know, he doesn't have a deal by training camp. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. That said, that's a long way off, and we have, hopefully, uh, a very nice playoff run between now and then. So, yeah. Try and focus on yeah. that. Um, Okay, so I think that's pretty much everything we wanted to, to cover this week. Yeah, Fulman, do you have anything to plug? No, but again, I'm reaching that classic point where I ought to do something to justify my existence. <laughs> so I might write something soon. Stay tuned. All right, cool. Um, I actually have an article coming out soon, uh, probably on Tuesday, which is the 18th, uh, about Wayne Simmons and whether the Leafs should look into acquiring him. The answer may shock you. Probably not, but um, yeah, that, that's an article that's going out. You can find all of mine and Fuleman's stuff at pensionpanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and at ATFuleman. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.